Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. I'm really excited to have Ayesha Akanbi on the podcast today. Akanbi is a writer and fashion stylist based in London. Personal reflection has guided her approach of reminding us of our commonalities instead of our differences, not just for social awareness, but also self-awareness. Akanbi resists the black and white thinking that can lead to divisive sociopolitical discourse and is comfortable in the gray. From identity to cancel culture, race, integrity, wokeness, the nature of groupthink, and more, she's determined to not let her work fall victim to the dogmatic script that discourages rationality and rewards reactivity. Aisha, what uh, just a pleasure to talk with you today already. We haven't even talked. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Scott. Well, we have so much to talk about. There's, there's no lack of topics of things going on in the world today. You know, from a social scientist perspective, I look at all the things going on and I just... I'm craving discussions with people with different perspectives and people who can bring just such great energy and compassion and thoughtfulness to the table, such as you do. But I wanted to start off before we dive into some of these specific topics, I want to start off a little bit with your background, because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we share some early childhood educational experiences that that, that weren't weren't so fun. Is that right? Yeah, we, we do. Um so I grew up and I definitely didn't think I would be doing anything that I'm doing now because um, I could barely write, you know, as in like my handwriting was terrible. I think that was the first sign uh, that alerted my teachers uh, to something being a little different with my um, – yeah, just with the way that I was learning and the way that I was picking up things. 
And so I had a lot of the learning difficulties, uh, dyslexia being one of them, ADHD, um, being on the spectrum, although I didn't know that when I was in school. That's something I found out in adulthood. Um, but you don't necessarily have to kind of know those things directly. You feel them. Um, and it wasn't until I was maybe in the ninth grade. So before the ninth grade, I was in all of the bottom classes. Um, so for like math, science and all the core subjects in English. And then in the ninth grade, I, I wrote a story. Um, and that story um, brought me to the top of the class. And, you know, I remember getting an award and like they, they, they took me on like this special school trip. And yeah, that was like the first time I had a push. Can I ask you what the story was about? I remember in school we had just been... Um, reading the diary of Anne Frank. And so I think I wrote about, if I remember correctly, and I might be wrong, but it was definitely about a girl who didn't leave her room very much. Um, and I, I can't remember what it was about specifically or what happened, um, but I grew up as an only child. So, you know, I probably had um, a lot of time to think about what introspection was like and, and, and things like that. So yeah, it was something around that. I was an only child, too. I still am an only child. Oh, yeah? I wonder what it is about us only children who had a learning disability, who enjoy writing as our mode of expression, uh, all these things that I wonder what is about that that, has, that that makes us both kind of have this contrarian bone in our bodies. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess maybe it's about... You know, I mean, I was always bored. That was the thing I used to always say to my mum as a kid. I was like, I'm bored, I'm bored. And so I would always have to make my own fun. You know, I'd mm. always have to be a little bit more imaginative. And I remember even having pet rocks um, that I would talk to and, and give characters to. So, yeah, I, I don't know. There's something about having to explore your own inner world, I think. Yeah, there's something really interesting about that. You said you were an only child, but you, you also you had a, an adopted brother. No, so right? I have a half-brother, so my dad. Oh, okay. So I have a half-brother, and he came to live with me at the age of 16. So I grew up majority of my childhood as an only child. And then, yeah, my brother came when I was 16. Gotcha. And and he came out as gay? Yes, he did. Yeah. Um, you know, we both uh, are not straight, you know. And we didn't. I mean, so you bonded with him over that? Yeah, we did. I mean, at first we didn't because he came out first and I guess I was quite weirded out, you know, and I, I guess I was quite weirded out. You know, maybe it was the shock and maybe because I I hadn't sort of explored, you know, honestly, at least my own feelings around my sexuality. Um, and so, you know, my 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 mum is Nigerian and my dad is too and they're Muslim. And so we come from a culture where that is far from the norm. And is generally unacceptable. And so um, eventually, you know, when I did come around to accepting my own sexuality, it was something we bonded over. Yeah, immensely. Yeah. And I am terribly sorry to hear he was he was murdered. Is yeah. that right? In 2012. Mm, so, yeah, that was, um, you know, that was um, the start of a, a real journey for me, if I'm honest. I think when my brother died, you know, something in me sort of was born, you know, and I think that was this sort of lifelong journey of like thinking about what it means to live. Um, I, you know, I always say now, I, I think if 
a death doesn't sort of like, you know, motivate the way we live, especially someone close to you, then, you know, it feels like to me that it's in vain. Yeah. There's a field you might be really interested in, in positive psychology called post-traumatic growth. And it yes. tries to look at the different ways that we can grow creatively, spiritually, you know, finding more meaning in our lives after a trauma. Wow. Awesome. I think I've just, I think I've vaguely come across that word once before. I think I tweeted it once. I didn't know the concept. Um, but yeah, it, it very much felt like that to me at the time. It was a very sudden, instant jolt out of a lot of the ways that I had been thinking. Aisha, you know, you have a lot of really good uh, a grasp of social uh, human dynamics. A lot of your tweets, you may not be familiar with the all the studies done, uh, but you still nail the point, which makes me kind of think, what's the point of doing studies when we can just have Ayesha's Twitter (laughs) timeline? (laughs) But that's a different story. I need a job. (laughs) (laughs) Scientists need a job. Okay. So yeah, there's common theme that you have of what stops us from fulfilling our potential. Boy, it resonates so deeply with, you know, with like my, the, the, my soul, you know, that's, that's what I'm so curious about as well. We have so much talent loss, right? Mm-hmm. And so many people are falling between the cracks. What do you think are some of the, the biggest barriers to people realizing their potential? So I know it's a big question. Yeah, it is a big question, but a, a great question. I think. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's, I think the nature of belonging has something to do with it. You know, of course, we all have the human urge to want to belong. But the problem is with a lot of membership to a group, you know, whether it's a political group, whether it can even be like a sports group or or anything like that is sometimes to have, let's say, a comfortable admission into the group. You might have to minimize large parts of who you are. Um, you might have to hold back what you think um, in order to just keep the peace. The group might make you think that feeling certain ways um, are not okay. And so that way you're discouraged from it. Mm. Um, I think also um, identity, I think even identity can be one of the things that stops us from exploring um, our potential. We may think because maybe we are black or male, uh, woman, um, gay, straight, you know, all of these things kind of come with a cultural code of what's acceptable. And many of us that want to belong, which is to fit in, are very scared to deviate from that script because we don't really know what lays on the other side of that, you know, sort of following the path is, um, it's what's recommended, you know, our parents did it. And, you know, and so we have a bit more control there. And so I think what stops us from experiencing or sorry, or exploring our potential is, is fear of the unknown. Um, yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, there's probably a lot more too. Uh, I think that we judge our feelings too much. I think that's a big thing. I think we're scared to be too self-reflective because we may not like what's there. Um, and I think that's because we, we're we quick to just call, you know, something good or bad rather than just accept what is. Okay, so 
yeah, you know, what a beautiful sentiment there and and call for self-honesty. This is something you've called for repeatedly. It's a common theme in, in your work is self-honesty. Well, let me ask you, because you... You're you're so interesting in the sense like you're you work in fashion, right? You're you're a fashion stylist. Mm-hmm. So how did you get interested in that as a topic? And how in that field do you attempt to bring in some of these ideas that you, you have about about humans? Well, you know, I came to fashion styling through um fairly alternative means. It wasn't necessarily that I had a big love of fashion per se, but I was very interested, maybe psychologically, I didn't know that at the time, about style. Why do people wear what they wear, you know? So why did you pick this blue polo shirt you're wearing, for instance, you know, (laughs) polka dot? I'm interested in, you know, what that says about you or what you want that to communicate. It picked me. It picked you, right, exactly. This morning. (laughs) (laughs) I was very interested in what we're communicating through our clothing. Um, you can almost think of like your outfit as your hello before you speak. And so for me, I um, I was always someone who was, especially when I was younger, I was uh, a bit eccentric in my style and, and that got me a lot of attention. And it got me attention from people that I think I wouldn't normally come into contact with. So whether this was like, you know, artist types or whether this was like, you know, even business types, you know, um, people of different backgrounds and and races, everyone, you know, kind of had some sort of interest in me that I, I didn't think would be there that wasn't for my presentation. So I was interested in maybe how I can help artists, music artists, um, have a different appeal. You know, I, I thought to myself, you know what, maybe if some of the artists in the UK had a different style and a different look, maybe it would have a bit more of a universal appeal. I, I realize that the way that we present ourselves can radically shift uh, the doors that open and close. And so it, I was interested in that. I love that. And have you gotten good receptive feedback from people in your field when you when you present some of your ideas? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, luckily, you know, I've been I've been working for maybe over ten years now, and you know, part of the process um, when I start, I guess you, your original question was about self honesty, and what I'm trying to do often is, um, I think everybody has a style, and I think sometimes we can be safe, and sometimes we want to. Um, yeah, we just want to, we don't want to, we don't want to stand out too much, you know, because we don't want to say too much with what we're set with our clothing. But I, my aim and my practice is to try and help people pull out what's naturally there. So it's not necessarily me telling you who you need to be, but let's working together and pull out something a little bit more, um, I don't know if the word is eye-catching, but a little bit more personalized. Um, so it's about, it's exploring the self, but through style. You like my polka polka dot shirt? I love your polka dot shirt. I'm into polka dot. <laughs> yay, yay. You know, you say that you like to avoid buzzwords. This is something you told me uh, when we were having a chat the other day. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, why? Let me just ask you why. Like, is what is the impulse there? Uh, is it is it because you don't want to be labeled? You don't want to be put in a box? You know, is there, like, why do you avoid buzzwords? Well, I, I think the writer side of me is very interested in what words mean and if words are precise. 
And so I think sometimes when there is a buzzword, um, we can quickly say these things and we're not necessarily thinking about what they mean, you know? So, and also buzzwords are often attached to a political side, you know? So let's say, um, I mean, fair enough, you know, we often say the word like virtue signaling now, but you know, when we do see, we do say the word virtue signaling, someone immediately can easily think of you as, oh, you're critiquing the left. You know, like they get attached. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They get attached to certain sides. Or let's say. Snowflakes. Right. Snowflakes. Exactly. Or if someone was to say something like, um, you know, your language is violent, you know, then we might think of, you know, uh, the type of activist, you know. And so I think when I write or speak or put something publicly, I don't necessarily want people to be thinking of their associations. I want people to be thinking of what I am saying. Um, and also when you avoid buzzwords, you really have to think about what you're saying. You know, it's not just so easy to kind of uh, rely on the script. And I think if we want to be honest um, and if we care about something, I think we should be able to talk about those things in our own language. Yeah. And you, you invent new ways of, of describing things. You said this one phrase that you said to me, I bet you didn't expect me to remember so much all the things you said, to me. <laughs> but I really like this. You said, Scott, I'm apolitical, but engaged. <laughs> I thought that was super. By the way, you sound like the queen, you know, that, that uh, apparently. Thank you. That's interesting. All, all my British uh, impersonations sound like the queen. <laughs> okay. People used to make fun of me in England when I lived in England about that. But you said hey, you're apolitical, but engaged. Well, I thought that was super, super interesting. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Apolitical in the sense that, you know, I'm not so party politically interested, but I'm interested in what forms our political ideologies or like what makes us, what makes us gravitate maybe to a side. And, you know, um, you know, I see the issues that are happening maybe more socially. I'm a bit more into, let's say, the social issues, maybe more so than the economic stuff. Um, but I am politically engaged in the sense that I am. I see what's going on, but I don't necessarily come from a side necessarily. I, I just, I, I try to be on my side of curiosity and, and the side of humanity. Um you know, so, and I, I think I've been quite lucky to, you know, uh, have built up a, a following of people from all sides, you know, like I, I see MAGA people retweeting me sometimes. I see. Sorry, what seven, people? Uh, MAGA, people with MAGA oh, in their MAGA. bio. Okay. Yeah, MAGA yeah. types. I got some MAGA you know? followers too, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, I have some um, some liberals, some progressives, you know, some Marxists, you know, all different Libertarians. Types. You got some libertarians Liber on there? Oh, yeah, I, I bet they I, love you. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so it's, it's very interesting um, because generally speaking, um, uh, you know, people are quite divided. So I, I quite like not not needing to feel like I, I have to um, take a side. I know a lot of people would say that maybe lacks a backbone. Um, and, you know, you some need to pick a side because if you haven't picked a side, then, yeah, some people, I think some people say that. I think some people think that you need a side. Um, but I sometimes think that maybe people are scared not to have a side. 
damn, drop the gauntlet there, drop the mic. <laughs> uh, you know, that's a really good point. Some people will say things like, well, there's a special place reserved in hell for those who are neutral. I yes. heard that uh, Governor Newsom said that, something along those lines, uh, about those who don't actively speak out about racism. Is it possible? Let me ask you something. Is it because I, I resonate with the not taking sides part, but I also can say at the same time that there are things that I'm against. Oh, sure. Me too. So, oh, for sure. I know. I know. Uh, both of us, for sure. So I'm in a bit of a silly mood today. So, oh, no, please. I love it. Go for it. Is that it. okay? I, All right. So, I'm just thinking, you know, because we're recording here on Sunday morning, so you right. wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> cool. So both, so to explain to me how both things can simultaneously be, be true at the same time, which is I, lo I love things that seem incompatible and making them integrated and make sense. So how, how can it be that we are people who don't like taking sides, but we, there are things we're against. So for instance, I, I mean, I'm against the idea of race superiority. I'm, yeah. I'm not a, a fan of that. <laughs> I'm not a fan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, he's <laughs> an understatement understatement that's why i'm laughing you know i'm really not a fan of that now in terms of the taking sides thing though you know i don't like to to jump on a side and then like pile on a different side but i do i, I do believe that you know i am against that so anyway what, what are your thoughts on that yeah i mean i'm against racial superiority um too of any sort um i mean i i often look at uh racial superiority in general as like I think, you know, and I have to really explore this a bit more, but my my sort of inclination is to think that um, racial superiority complexes are rooted in inferiority complexes. And I think it's an overcompensation. And so you can not necessarily, let's say, um, uh, there's, there's many ways to think about racism and to think about how we potentially combat racism or to not perpetuate racism that doesn't have anything to do with what we choose to post online. You know, um, yeah, I, I do. I'm really scared about living in a world where what we post online is a, a symbolism of our morality or lack of. Um, and so, you know, when people say, you know, that, I don't know, I mean, to not have a side doesn't mean you're neutral. You know, um, it doesn't mean that you're neutral about these things. Uh, it doesn't mean that you can't get annoyed. It doesn't mean that you can't be angry. It doesn't mean that you can't give it a lot of thought. Wow. You just blew my mind. <laughs> you're, you're being kind. You're being kind. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's such a good point. Well, I really am wondering how we can have more productive discussions about race particularly in the United States right now, because I just don't know the situation in England. And you, maybe you can tell me the situation in England. But I'm wondering, what are, what are some of your thoughts on some really productive avenues for people to listen to each other, for people to care about each other, to show each other, comp, to show each other humanity? Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, again, I think if we're, we're going to come to the conversation, um, I think we need to be aware that yeah, people may have ignorances. People may not know everything about your experience, but that doesn't mean it's rooted in hate, you know. And so I, I don't think we always need to um, conflate ignorance and hatred. Um, a lot of us in the world are ignorant on uh, a whole host 
of issues and people and the way other people are living. You know, a straight man may not know what it's like um, to be, a, you know, a, a gay man, you know, and, 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 and all these other different sort of identities. And so when we do speak, we have to not assume ill intent. Um, we have to recognize that we are all sharing the world. Um, however, our experiences of that same world are radically different. And so if, let's say if your worldview, someone else's worldview, let's say, um, is shaped entirely maybe by the racial experiences that they've had, you know, which is why they know specifically that racism exists and it's palpable and it's daily, then I think you have to kind of accept also that this other person who has, whose race hasn't had to be an issue for them, and that person may not even be white. That could be another black person. That could be a Southeast Asian person. That could be many different people. We have to accept that they also, due to their experiences, their worldview is shaped by that, you know, and they don't have to cancel out each other. Ooh. Can you elaborate a little more on, on how they don't have to cancel out each other? So just because, um, let's say, a, a black person, a, one black person might say they experience racism on a daily basis and someone else might say, actually, my race has been no issue for me, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, this other person's um, experience of, of racism does not exist, you know. However, it, what we might think about instead is, well, maybe not everybody experiences it. And so we might think about, you know, what is that? Is it about class? You know, is it about the area that you're living in? Is it about the people that you're mixing with? You know, is it, can we maybe say broadly that everybody that you're going to come into contact with is innately going to be a racist if this person isn't experiencing it at all, experiencing it at all, sorry. And so, yeah, I just think it's respecting that, um, respecting that, we, we all have different experiences of the world, you know, um, and I don't think it's fair to say that just because maybe someone hasn't experienced racism, that they are lying um, or that they're a traitor or even, you know, I mean, I think most people who are a minority, let's say within a majority have experienced some form of discrimination, you know, but it might not be to the extent where they might feel oppressed. Um, you know, I know lots of people like that, for instance, you know, and even myself in London, um, you know, I've got a lot of black friends who would say that their lives have been colored by racism. Uh, I no pun intended. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's just, yeah. In there. Um, but I, I, I wouldn't say that mine has, you know, and yeah. I think they're both, you know, quite, um, valid experiences. So intersectionality. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about all your intersections here. Black, uh, not straight. By the way, I, I'm respecting the fact you said not straight. You didn't say like yeah, lesbian, no, well, you know. Well, yeah, lesbian. Yes, yeah, fine. So let's say black, <laughs> lesbian, um, black, black woman, woman, woman. Of course. How did I forget? I yeah, I forget myself. <laughs> you almost forgot that one. Yeah, I guess it's because you know what, Scott? I know this sounds strange, and I don't mean this in a non-binary way. But I don't really think of myself through my identity first, you know. Oh so I, I, don't I think, so resonate with that. Yeah. yeah, I don't think this is the first time where I forgot that I'm a woman, <laughs> you know, and, and I, I don't mean that I'm trans either. Yeah, um, which would be fine. Yeah, if you were okay. nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Well, you look so interesting uh, because you, you don't think that you're 
your personal life experiences match up necessarily to the stereotype of 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 what someone with those identity intersections should have. Yeah, well, I guess the thing about intersectionality is, you know, it's a theory, right? It's yeah. a theory, you know, rather yeah. than, let's say, a reality. It's an interpretation of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an interpretation of reality uh, that doesn't mirror my experience. Um, I mean, if we can say, has, has my sexuality ever been a problem in life? Yes, it's been a problem. When I was younger, for my family, can I say that my sexuality has been uh, a problem professionally? No, at least not to my uh, knowledge. Um, I don't go outside and experience lots of um, homophobia. Um, I can't say that my um, my race has been something that I've noticed holding me back in any way, um, nor my womanhood. Um, And I know lots of other women who are just like me, whether gay, bisexual, black and female. And yep, I think they could attest to the same thing. Um, And so, you know, that does bring up some interesting questions, you know, as to, you know, or maybe it's just the fact that we're all different and maybe one theory doesn't fit all. Right. And that's a good point. And it, it brings up lots of issues with the sense like, how much as a society do we want to categorize suffering based on race? So like white people don't suffer, black people suffer. If you're a woman and you're black, you suffer even more. It it brings up a lot of questions. How much do we want to talk in those terms versus, well, everybody suffers. Isn't there an REM song about that? Or something? I don't know. Everybody, everybody hurts. Sometimes, it's, you know, it's, it's it's probably quite profound. It's true. Every oh, where, where did I go? Where, I just went somewhere. But you know how how do we want to frame the issues? Do we want to do we want to just open it up to in treating everyone like individuals? Like if we went if we went like full stop on treating just individuals as individuals then we would just treat every person in front of us on a case-by-case basis. Be like, tell me all about your life. You know, like, like whoever you meet, be like, I want to know, I want to know who you are, you know, as a person, as an individual, all your life experiences, your pain, your suffering, your pleasures, <laughs> you know, or, you know what I'm saying? The good things in your life yeah. and, and really get to know a human before you bring into it all your preconceptions because, oh, they're, they're white, they must have it easy, or they're black, or they must have it tough. It's a question of how do we want to think about the world in a lot of ways, right? Yeah, um, I, I think it's too simplistic to suggest that, you know, one theory can explain everybody's experience. I personally take people on a case-by-case basis. I mean, there are a lot of black people or ethnic minorities who don't want to be seen through the lens of oppression first. You know, they don't want to meet a stranger and that the first thing that stranger sees is their suffering. Um, I think that can be quite dehumanizing to a lot of people. It might be empowering to other people because other people might feel like you recognize my pain, you know? Right. But I don't know if we always need, I, you know, at least I don't know if everybody always needs someone to recognize their pain before they can find common ground. You know, I'm, I'm not sure about that. It's something I've been thinking about a lot, you know, like why, why would I need a stranger to recognize um, some of the hardships I face? I mean, I would imagine with, over time, 
we might get to know those things. I might get to know those things about that person as well. But I wouldn't want someone to assume what my life has been because that can equally be offensive or um, wrong, misguided. And I can imagine if we were to all do that with people, that would also bring a lot of issues. I think a lot of people would say uh, that they feel that they aren't seen, you know, all of a sudden. Uh, I think they would feel as if, you know, all their hard work um, to overcome a lot of their issues and setbacks is all forgotten. And all they can, all they're thought of is, all they're thought of as is their suffering. I, I don't think people necessarily. Or their past suffering. Or their past suffering. Yeah. yeah. I don't think that's the, I don't think that's the way that we want to, or lots of us at least anyway. I, I don't doubt that many people do, but I don't think that's the way that we all want to be perceived. It's it, it it's a very interesting question because I think about my early childhood experiences and how I want to definitely put that beyond i want to move beyond that i want to you know transcend being labeled as a stupid kid you know and um i want to be seen for what i do now and 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 the work i do now i, I certainly don't want to be seen through the lens of oh wow well what you're doing is so good considering hey. you were stupid <laughs> as a kid yeah. you know what i mean like i don't want to be seen through that lens you know and so therefore i can bring that empathy to understanding how someone else through a racial lens might not want to be viewed necessarily through a, a racial lens. So I, I hear what you're saying, but it, it, it do you, you, you see how it creates nuance and like deeper thought and discussions than, than maybe some of the discussions we're having about these topics. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, a lot of people would say on, you know, Twitter is not a good place to have a lot of these discussions. And I mean, I know that we have them outside of, of Twitter, let's say they, they bleed out into journalism and uh, yeah. op-eds and think pieces, um, but they're often inspired by Twitter. They're often written uh, knowing they're going to go on Twitter. And so people, people, I think on Twitter are incentivized to go for views and perceptions or world yeah worldviews that sort of lack complexity because it's easier to process potentially um, it's it attracts a lot more attention maybe it's more exciting or more provocative um, but it's not it's not complete I would say it's an unfinished picture um, but we do I mean if we want to, if we want to give full dignity to a human being's life, uh, then I think I do. it's important. I do. Yeah, and you know, I do too. And so I personally am reluctant to see people through their suffering first because I think if we do that, we're inviting people to, um, to patronize us. We're inviting people to sort of tiptoe around us. And um, I don't know, I, I'm not sure if you can intellectually respect anybody you have to tiptoe around. So let's talk about feminists. Nah, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> because I think that, that things are more nuanced and complex than what certain types of feminists, how what they're bringing to the table in the sense that it's all the fault of the patriarchy. Let's blame everything on the patriarchy. Yeah, um, again, these are really, I am almost... I'm almost shocked that adults could think such a thing. I'm almost shocked that we can put everything in the world down to one group. I, I find that 
painfully uh, naive and oversimplified. Um, it's just not true. And I think if we think about our own lives, our own experiences, our experiences with friends, our experiences with our mothers, our experiences in the workplace, I think we know that this isn't true. You know, and I think what happens though is people are probably saying, but men are worse. So I think deep down, maybe people know that, of course, women have their own issues uh, because humans are not perfect. So they have to have their own issues. Um, however, I think we we don't want to talk about that because I think the idea is, well, we'll get to that once we dismantle the patriarchy, so to speak. You know, um, I don't think a lot of um, mainstream uh, third wave, if you like, feminists, as they're often called, uh, or online feminists, pop feminists. There's a, there's a lot of ways to describe this type of thinking. Um, I think they run on the idea that let's bring down the big problem and then we'll work out the little problems. Um, but they're all problems, you know, or maybe we just accept that human nature is flawed. Um, and, you know, I don't know, sometimes people seem reluctant to do that. Um, but I can't subscribe to the idea that, you know, our world is the way that it is solely because of men. Um, I do think that, you know, if there is surely, you know, as they call it, a toxic form of masculinity, you know, which is just a type of masculinity that can be destructive, there are definitely things that I would imagine are fairly corrosive in femininity. You know, whether that is, um, and this is not all women, just like, you know, um, let's say uh, what they describe as toxic masculinity isn't all men. But, you know, there are lots of women who um, see each other as competition first. Uh, there are, you know, a lot of the ideas around or a lot of the ways that we frame toxic masculinity can still be very attractive to some women. You know, there are some women who um, consider those traits that we call toxic to also be real masculinity. You know, we still have ideas about, you know, within women about what makes a real man. That's quite a dangerous notion. If we have any notion about what makes a real man, that means that we're not willing to accept variety within men, you know, and that can be a dangerous idea. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, we don't get to live in a sick society, you know, without sort of inheriting some of its poison. A lot of wisdom there. There's a lot of wisdom there. Do you, so do you think the patriarchy exists? Um, I, <laughs> it's not the sort of language that I use. Um, let's say, are there more men in positions of power um, in the United States or in the UK? It would appear so. Um, are women oppressed? Uh, and living in a sort of, I don't know, living maybe in perpetual fear of men. Again, I, I don't think every woman could say this, no. Um, so again, because I, I, I like to be careful about the words that I use, you know, I think if we were living in a patriarchy, I don't know if we would be able to call it out so easily you know, without any repercussion, you know, without any consequence. 
um, without any imprisonment. Um, you know, because there are places where you pay, you know, a heavy penalty for speaking out against certain things, whether that's the government, whether that's men, whether that's um, changing a piece of clothing or taking off a piece of clothing or whatever it may be. Um, so, you know, even in uh, Nigeria, where my parents are from, you know, the way that, let's say, police uh, would handle rape there um, is almost by not handling it at all. <laughs> you know, that seems to be something that's quite oppressive. And I know, you know, even in the United States, I think rape is one of the, the hardest things to actually you know, prosecute, you know, properly. Um, but at least you can go somewhere and someone will take you seriously. No, I hear you. And um, I've also I've been looking into cases of men being raped and uh, they're, they're not taken seriously whatsoever. Yeah. So. Yeah, they're not taken seriously. I mean, there's still a stigma for a man to even say such a thing yeah. um, because he, you know, there's so even, you know, the concept even of emasculation, you know, I've always found this interesting that like if a man does or doesn't do something, his, his, so, you know, his masculinity is taken away, you know, it's, it's a, I think there's something really worth thinking about there because women don't necessarily in the same way, there isn't necessarily a word to just, you know, there isn't a word, an equivalent, I think, to the word emasculation for women, you know, not in the same way. Um, however, yeah, so, yeah, there's lots of things that I think men experience that if they were to be honest about um, society at large, thinks that they compromise something, you know, compromise something about how strong they are um, or how stoic they are. Um, and yeah, and I, I think that's really destructive. Uh, I can see why you want to not use specific buzzwords, but to actually articulate your thoughts as nuanced as possible without it being reduced to specific words. So I really do appreciate that about you. So do you want to play a little game for the remaining time we have where I read some of your my favorite tweets of yours? Oh, please, let's do it. And you, you tell me what you think. Tell me, do, do you still agree with the tweets? And then, you know, what you elaborate your thoughts. Uh, here's one. Anyone who loves you will gently tell you uncomfortable truths, but those who want you dependent on them will aggressively tell you comfortable stories. I agree with that. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. I agree with that. I I do believe that, you know, when we love someone, you know, like our parents love us, you know, you know, hopefully, you know, sometimes that happens, you know, they can be more honest with us than anybody else. You know, sometimes yeah. honesty isn't always the, the gentlest, um, but they're honest and they're honest for our well-being. However, when we want someone to believe in us, um, buy from us or, you know, share in our narrative, um, that person seems to have a vested interest in maintaining a narrative uh, rather than exploring the truth. I don't think they do it necessarily um, with, um, I don't think they're conscious of it. I can't even say that they're doing it um, consciously. I, I don't think it's conscious a lot of the time. I'm, I'm sure some people are quite conscious, but... I don't it's think coming it's coming from emotions. Yeah, it's coming from emotions. Yeah, I don't think they realize that's what's happening. 
Um, do, do you want me to move on to another tweet? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Isn't this fun? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm into, I'm into, yeah. Are you having fun? Well, I want to ask you. Yeah, are you having, having fun? fun? No, no I one's ever sure. asked I, No one's ever before because I, I think sometimes I can come across vague. So I guess it would be it's nice to clear them up. Clear it up. The truth is often offensive before it becomes liberating. Yeah, very much. I'm very scared about society's inability, it seems, to handle uncomfortable truths. You know, I'm, I'm very scared that society um, thinks the entire world is a safe space. It's not. Um, at least uh, not if you want to grow in the world. Um, and so, yeah, the truth is offensive, even when we think about ourselves, you know. We learn things about ourselves and we're like, oh, that's why I did that. Oh, that's why I said that. It's not comfortable. It's unflattering. And I think we need to um, take up uh, more of an interest in the unflattering truth. Hmm. Truth hurts. It does. Sometimes. It does. And I'm sure many people have said this. I can't remember who, but, you know, I think someone said, you know, the truth will piss you off, you know, before. I can't remember. I, I'm saying it wrong. I'm paraphrasing. But, yeah, it, it is. It's, it's annoying. <laughs> the truth. I think you're paraphrasing your, your own self. No. <laughs> like a prior tweet of yours. <laughs> like someone said. Yeah. Okay, cool. It would be great if people could share their experiences without suggesting that everyone who shares their identity experiences the exact same thing, which only validates the idea that people of a specific race are in some way all the same. Now, you, we, we talked about that already, and you, you made your point there about that. Did, did you want to elaborate on it anymore? Yeah, I'll maybe be brief on it. You know, the idea that, you know, let's say in this moment right now, I've seen uh, messages like, don't talk to black, don't talk to your black friends, reach out to your black friends. Um, asking your black friends about what happened on the weekend is traumatizing. And I just don't know why someone doesn't say, I find this question. So I think that um, it would just be easier if people spoke for themselves. You know, um, it's a very weird, I mean, you almost don't hear people speaking uh, entirely on, or speaking exactly for their race in the same way that I, I'm used to seeing it uh, with black people. And I think it does exacerbate this idea um, that we're all the same, you know, um, and, and I think it's corrosive. It, it seems like a, a cycle, you know, if yeah. people to treat you all the same, then you can't put out the idea that you're all the same. You know, to me, I don't know. It seems fairly basic logic. Um, and maybe I, I'm missing something here because it seems to be quite commonsensical to me that you shouldn't, or it's not productive, at least, should I say, to do that. And that also works in terms of whites, not assuming that all whites have had the same experience of privilege. Is right. That right. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I, I couldn't assume such a thing. I think that's quite audacious for me to assume that every white person has. I, I mean, again, privilege isn't really an area that I spend much time in because life is a bit more complicated than that. You know, you may have white skin, but you may not have education. You may not have parents. You may not have um, all sorts of things. You may have grown up extremely poor. 
Um, I can't say that every white person is more privileged than me. I, I don't know what I don't know what I'm saying about myself by by making such a claim. So I guess someone would say, technically, they do have white privilege because of their skin color, but I guess that's what someone would say is that it just it is a fact. If you have white skin, you have white privilege. I don't understand what they well white privilege mm-hmm. in what sense is in like. Okay. They would I, say they would say that all else being equal, that's a lot of things that we're ignoring. But all else being equal, it's uh, it's it's better to be born with white skin in terms of how you'll be treated than black skin, and that in, in of itself gives you the privilege. That that's I think how the argument goes. But then, but being born with white skin, and you are let's say um, noticeably uneducated, um, uncultured, if you like. Um, you come from, like, a, a very rough part of town. I can't say that, let's say, every white person is going to treat you like... Uh, I can't say every white person is going to treat you the same. I don't know how we know that. I, I personally don't anyway. I, I don't know how we know that every white person is going to be treated great because they have white skin. I, I don't know that. Yeah, I think that's why the argument goes all else being equal. But I, oh, all else being equal. Sorry, that's what you said. Yeah, all else being equal. Yeah. Um, I mean, ah, uh, I mean, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of stuff to ignore, though. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is. I mean, okay. I, I guess I'm not quite willing, and I'm. No, I mean, people can have that um, sense of things if it works for you. But I think it. I think it slightly um validates uh, an inferiority um uh, complex in everybody else i think it says that yeah it says something that i'm not comfortable to um to push to the world um to young black people or to anybody who already may feel like the world may be against them um it's just not really something i think is productive or helpful Cool. Thanks for offering that perspective. Uh, Here's another tweet. It is childish and manipulative to act as though disagreement means hatred. Are you telling people to grow their F up? Yeah, essentially. Essentially. (laughs) Grow up. I mean, that's something I I just wish I could say a lot of the time um, is just grow up. (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) just not the case. We know it's not the case. We're not that silly. I believe in us more than that. We know that all disagreement doesn't mean hate. We know that. We know that our beliefs are informed by religious background, cultural background. Um, so it might be a sin, let's say. Let's say the way someone, someone's lifestyle or the way someone does something might just be counter to what religion says. There are plenty of reasons as to why we disagree with someone and it doesn't mean we hate them. You know. And so I think this is a manipulative tactic because we live in like a reputation economy, if you like. And as soon as we um, label someone as hateful, um, then we smear them and we can potentially sort of dangle their employment on a string. Um, They will back out of the conversation. People will pile on them. um, And it just seems, it seems like a weak argument. It seems like a weak uh, manipulative. I don't even know if I would call it childish. Because I don't know if children do that. Um, but it's immature. 
Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's not giving children enough credit. I don't know, yeah, but it's definitely immature, you know, and immaturity can, can live in any age group. Despite, oh boy, you have so many good tweets that it's just like, which ones do I pick? Um, so many good ones. Despite what we're told, we are all so much more than our identities and the worst things we've been through. Yeah, um, we are. We are so much more than our identities. You know, our race doesn't have to determine our thoughts. Our sexuality doesn't have to determine our interests. Um Having white skin doesn't have to determine how you view those who are not white. Um, and we're definitely a lot more than the, the worst things that we've been through. If, we're, if, if we don't view ourselves by our worst behavior, you know, we often don't do that. We don't think of ourselves. We don't think, you know what, I lied that one time or I stole or, you know, one time I, I you know, I got angry and I punched the wall or whatever it may be. Maybe we were violent to someone. Most of us don't define ourselves by our worst actions. So if we don't define ourselves by our worst actions, why should we define ourselves by the worst things that we've been through if we are to overcome the things that we've been through? Um, I just think there's way more ways that we can be interesting. It seems like we have a double standard. We don't judge ourselves by our worst selves, but we judge other people by their worst self. Exactly that. Oh, you know, I'm going to tweet that. Can I tweet that? Of course you can. You know, that point. I, I just, did I just make a good point? Yeah, you made a, I think made a great point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. SBK made a good point. <laughs> you made lots. I, I retweeted you today, actually. Um, no, are you serious? Wait, you retweeted me? Whatever. Of course I did. I retweeted you about um, oh social psychologists. You said this is like a moment for them, you know, because there's so yeah, much to unpack and right. to explore. And I think that's very right. right. I mean, that's how, I mean, I'm not a social psychologist, but. I'm looking at it and it's, it's overwhelming the amount of things to explore. Yeah. Yeah. It's really overwhelming. And it also keeps, you know, uh, social scientists busy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I was saying social psychologists, but yes. Yeah, oh, no, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it keeps us off the streets. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. As long as you're off the streets. Or else I'd be up to no good. Um, <laughs> I often think of just throwing it in and becoming a stand-up comedian or something okay. uh, that still talks about human nature, but not through journal articles. <laughs> yeah, well, I think there's a space for that. Stand-up might be the only place can be honest, sorry. Yeah, it might be the only place left, right? Mm. Where we can be honest. Oh my gosh, I just want to thank you so much for chatting with me on the Psychology Podcast and I consider you like my soul sister. Oh, man, you're my soul brother. Soul <laughs> I don't brother. know all the things that could be wrong with that statement, but I, it comes from love when I say it. So, and, I, and I'm talking about your soul. I'm not talking about your skin color. I'm not, so. I, get I get it, Scott. You're my soul brother. No one can tell me anything. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks again for the chat, and I wish you all, all the best. Thank you. Uh, I wish you all the best, too. Um, have a great day. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes and subscribe to the Psychology Podcast YouTube channel as we're really trying to increase our viewership on YouTube. In fact, many of these episodes are in video format on YouTube, so you'll definitely want to check out that channel. 
Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better H E L P dot com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainer, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at Let'sMakeAPlan.org.